Welcome back to the Young Entrepreneur's Journey with special guest, Dr. Bill Janeway. Uh, bidding up of prices for these frontier uh, companies that, that represent the, the, the scientific and technical frontier mobilizes resources on a scale that actually does create a new economy. You know, the companies, the railway yeah. companies, by and large, went bust, but nobody tore up the tracks. The companies that, that put mm. down the dark fiber through the 1990s went bust. They almost all went bust, but nobody pulled out the fiber. It was there for Netflix 10 years later. Yeah. So this notion of um, understanding the dynamics, the political and financial dynamics of the economics of innovation. That's really what I've been focused on since I returned to Cambridge, uh, just in time for the global financial crisis to make economics a really interesting subject again. Welcome to the Young Entrepreneur's Journey, where we take the skills, mindset, and attitude needed to achieve any entrepreneurial endeavor. Whether you're just starting out or you're already on your journey. And now, our host, Yasmina Ellens. Hello and welcome back to the Young Entrepreneur's Journey podcast with your host Yasmina Ellens and today I have the absolute pleasure of chatting with Dr. Bill Janeway who is a true expert in the field of economics. He is an active growth equity investor as well and in this regard he views himself as a sort of theorist practitioner and on the theoretical side he's very involved with economics at the Cambridge University. He has a PhD and uh, he was also a student under Richard Kahn uh, who was one of uh, the the leading students of Keynes, I believe, and on the more of the, the more practical side, he's been an active growth equity investor for more than forty years, and is currently senior advisor and managing director of Warburg Pincus, and responsible there for building out the information technology investment practice, and so. This is a really fantastic interview for anyone who is interested in gaining an in-depth understanding of economics, as well as its practical applications to business from someone who is literally a leading subject matter expert in the, in the field. And so in this interview, more specifically, we'll learn about how to finance innovation. You'll learn about the economic lessons that we can learn from the coronavirus pandemic. We can also talk about what we can learn from China and some interesting thoughts about why capitalism is often perceived as bad. And there's so much more in here. It's a really great lesson. So without further ado, I introduce to you Dr. Bill Janeway. It is an absolute pleasure for me today to be chatting to Dr. Bill Janeway and to be interviewing him on behalf of Cambridge University Entrepreneurs. And so he is uh, he's a sort of known as a theorist practitioner, has been an active growth equity investor for more than 40 years and is also senior advisor and managing director of Warburg Pincus and is also sort of very well known for his economic work and his book, Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy. So I have a number of questions that I'm very interested in asking you. And the first question that I'd like to ask you is sort of what originally, what first got you into the world of business? Well, I did my doctorate uh, in economics at Cambridge a very long time ago, long enough that I was immersed in the micro as well as the macro world of Keynes's economics. And I say Keynes's rather than Keynesian because Keynes's mm. deep understanding that we are all doomed 
including in our market behavior as economic agents, to be making decisions under conditions of uncertainty where we simply cannot know in advance what the full outcome and consequences of our decisions will be. That infected me very mm. deeply. As a result of which, I determined yeah. as I received my doctorate that I was not going to proceed on the academic track that I had anticipated because by 1971, mm. when I got my doctorate, the neoclassical economics of rational expectations, of uh, representative agents with complete knowledge of the future was becoming dominant, and I just couldn't teach that. So I stumbled into Old Wall Street, which was a very eccentric place populated by hundreds, at least, of, of uh, private partnerships with different characteristics. And very fortunately, I joined a firm called F. Eberstadt, founded by one of the forgotten titans of mid-20th century America and, and the world. Um, named Ferdinand Eberstadt. And the firm had a very distinctive um, uh, core uh, asset, and that was fundamental research into the science-based industries as guides to investment. That began with chemicals, then pharmaceuticals, then electronics, and just as I joined, on to computing. And it was there that I discovered computers. And I discovered why they were interesting. Mm. And over the course of a number of years, as, as indeed laid out in the first part of my book, I became really uh, very much engaged with what was going on at the frontier of computing, uh, both, both practically and theoretically. Um, I had the enormous good fortune to be introduced and then accepted as a kind of visiting friend at the great Palo Alto Research Center of Xerox, where so much of what we take for granted uh, in the way of modern human-computer interaction was originally imagined and then first uh, the first existence proofs were created. So at the same time, back mm -hmm. in that period, um, uh, first of all, just to provide some context, and this may be so shocking, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, now floating around 24,000, 25,000, in the bottom of the 1970 slump, reached 550. Not 5,500. No way. 550, triple digits. Wow. was dead. But at our firm, we had relationships with the brightest and most thoughtful of institutional investors to whom we were providing our research. And we were able to mobilize capital from them for new emerging growth companies based on technology, uh, both the technology of information mm. technology and also increasingly of the life sciences, uh, to bring them uh, longer term capital for companies that should have been able to go public, to list on the public market, but the public market was closed. And that was the entryway into the world of venture capital because mm. not every company that we funded or that our institutional clients funded and that we were responsible for did exactly what they were supposed to do. 
Um, and when they didn't, in other words, when they tried to run out of money, um, we were deeply mm. committed. I used to say to our clients, if we lose any one of these companies, you'll find me in the operating theater covered in blood with my thumb on the carotid artery <laughs> trying to maintain a heartbeat. Um, that's how I learned. Yeah. I learned the venture capital business coming through the back door as a kind of cross between mm. a policeman and a garbage man. And, um, and that evolved yeah. through the 80s. The market came back, the IPO market reopened, venture capital went from being a tiny little craft activity of a very small number of firms to an increasingly on its way to becoming an industry. In the mid 80s, our firm mm -hmm. uh, really lost its business model when, as was happening in Britain as well, uh, competition was introduced, radically increasing the transactional efficiency of markets but eliminating the subsidy for mm. fundamental research that came from fixed brokerage commissions. So we sold our firm. We sold it actually to a British bank called Robert Fleming. Uh, and in 1988, I joined Warburg Pincus with a mandate to take what I'd learned about investing as an active, engaged venture capitalist uh, to one of the great new firms of private equity, already the first firm that ever raised a billion dollars in an investment fund of any sort, um, and a firm with a distinctively mm. long-term approach towards uh, building companies from scratch and helping to fix companies along the way that had greater growth opportunities than resources, and then very occasionally um, joining with management teams to buy companies that had perhaps uh, become radically undervalued in the public market relative to their long-term fundamentals. Mm. So that's how I got into it and how I evolved. And along the way, um, along the way, I was an enormous beneficiary of my time at Cambridge. Because first of all, yeah. there is no world in which it is more clear that one cannot know the full consequences of decisions today than the world of venture capital, of building companies from scratch at the technological frontier. Second, mm. uh, I, also, I also had the privilege of having written my PhD thesis on the labor government of 1929-31. So in 1999, during the great dot-com tech uh, internet bubble, um, I'd actually seen that movie before. And so uh, I joined with my boss at Warburg Pincus and we did everything we could to liquidate the technology portfolio as the bubble was reaching its peak, um, and 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 then before mm. before first. Um, so I really I really owe that that deep insight into financial history uh, to Cambridge, and it's one reason why I I come back yeah. so engaged with Cambridge over the last dozen years or so. For sure. I mean, you, you you do seem to live your life as this sort of theorist practitioner, like you've got the insight into the academic nuances of how the economy works, and then you've got the practical experience of how that applies to business. Would you like to talk a little bit more in depth of how those two elements of like being immersed in academic world, having done a PhD, being involved with Cambridge, and then also being very involved in the nitty gritty of business, how those two things interplay and work together? 
Yes, yes, I mean, I'd be delighted to reflect on that. Um, well, first of all, as I say, uh, my, my theoretical interest really goes back to the profound relevance of Keynes's and, the, and Keynes's students. My supervisor was Richard Kahn, um, perhaps his leading student. Um, their, their deep understanding of the radical uncertainty um, which is not a consequence of our not having enough brain power, but that the, the information we need to process to evaluate decisions hasn't, doesn't exist until we make the decision. Mm. Uh, what George yeah. Soros, uh, with whom I've collaborated in the creation of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, what he calls reflexivity, that we, we, we get signals from the market, we act on those signals, and it changes the signals. And that fits, that is a very deep Keynesian or notion of Keynes. So that's where it began. Then mm -hmm. in the mid eighties, um, after we sold our firm, um, uh, I frankly spent a couple of years sort of pretending to be an executive of a global financial institution, which I was not born, I was not born or bred to that role. So that yeah. gave me a little time. I met a remarkable maverick economist whose name was totally forgotten until the global financial crisis, Hyman Minsky, mm. Minsky of the Minsky moment, the student in Keynes's extending Keynes to understanding the dynamics of the financial system. And that added mm. a further uh, link in the chain of, of thinking about how the world works. The third link the third link was getting really interested in not the history of technology per se. There was an enormous amount, great body of work led by scholars like Joel Moker at Northwestern, uh, David Mowry, great body of work on the history of technology going back to the first industrial revolution, but rather a missing, mm. a missing body of work. On, so how did this stuff get financed? How did, they, how did investments at the frontier of scientific knowledge and technological pra practice, where did the money come from when you couldn't calculate in advance yeah. what the rate of return was going to be, what the net present value of the expected future cash flows would be? And that's when I really got engaged. Um, I, I initiated a research project at the American Social Science Research Council, this back in about 1999, 2000, as the great tech bubble was peaking, uh, on precisely financing innovation. And what clearly was the case was that there were two, two sources of funding for projects whose economic value could not be known in advance. One, was the state, mm. the mission-driven state, motivated by national security, by national development, to put resources to work on projects whose economic return was in entirely secondary. This, of course, is the, is, is mm. the story on the one hand of the um, massive subsidies to build railroads in the 19th century around the world from government. Uh, not as it happens from Britain, although the British government was crucial to building railways in Britain because the promoters had to get limited liability and be given the right to force the sale of rights of way from the landowners 
who controlled parliament. So there's always this engagement, big investments in technological infrastructure, and then increasingly investments in R&D, in in science at the frontier. Um, And then the second source of funding, again and again, and indeed going back to the railways and right through the tech bubble, were waves of financial speculation, bubbles. Mm. Most bubbles are unproductive from tulip bulbs to the great credit bubble of the 2004, 5, 6, 7 period. Most bubbles involve speculation in land, in, um, let's say, uh, uh, cannabis stocks, financial assets, assets, (laughs) possibility of increasing the production possibilities, the production frontier of the economy. But occasionally, Mm. railroads, electrification, uh, automobiles, uh, and of course, computers and the internet, the financial speculation, the unsustainable uh, bidding up of prices for these frontier uh, companies that that represent the the scientific and technical frontier mobilizes resources on a scale Mm. that actually does create a new economy. You know, the companies, the railway yeah. companies, by and large, went bust, but nobody tore up the tracks. The companies that that put mm. down the dark fiber through the 1990s went bust. They almost all went bust, but nobody pulled out the fiber. It was there for Netflix 10 years later. Yeah. So this notion of um, understanding the dynamics, the political and financial dynamics of the economics of innovation. That's really what I've been focused on since I returned to Cambridge uh, just in time for the global financial crisis to make economics a really interesting subject again. Uh, and that's yeah. the, the, why, I, why I wrote the book, the first edition of 2012, and then the second edition a year and a half ago, uh, ex- revised and extended for the age of Trump and Brexit, as I like to say. Yeah, for sure. A uh, incoherence along the political dimension of the financial economy. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see how all of these things, you know, the political interests, the economic incentives and the sort of financial uh, speculation all merge together. And I mean, what would be an interesting question to ask you, given the current uh, macroeconomical situation, Uh, What are your sort of thoughts on the current state of economy in the days of the coronavirus pandemic? And how do you think that entrepreneurs and companies can actually thrive during this time? Well, first of all, the pandemic has hammered home a lesson that I learned Mm. the hard way. Most venture capitalists and entrepreneurs learn it the hard way. It was a lesson that was instilled in me by my mentor, my remarkable difficult, almost impossible, uh, but quite brilliant mentor of men, a venture capitalist named Fred Adler. Adler mm. had um, pillows made up with needlepoint that said, corporate happiness is positive cash flow. And he used to throw mm. them at the CEOs of his portfolio, <laughs> demanding that at all times, even if they were early startups, that they had a path, a plan for how they could mm. pay their bills because their customers gave them more money, more cash, than it took to develop and deliver the service or the product that they were offering. 
So mm. one of the things that the pandemic has done at the micro level has been to ram that lesson home and companies that have no plan, no prospect, no credible path to positive cash flow, do I need to mention WeWork, um, are yeah. clearly exposed. Um, so the, the, the impact on the unicorn bubble is actually, I think, extremely healthy, extremely healthy, mm. that merely that, that in the context of zero real risk-free interest rates or negative real risk-free interest rates, being able to raise boundless amounts of money from investors who are typically public market investors with no knowledge or experience or capability for exerting mm. responsible governance, that, that that game, which was a really you know, hot game for three years or so, from 2014, uh, actually for five years, 2014 to last year, uh, that game is basically over. So that's at the micro level. But at the macro level, we've had mm. this is this is a unique experience of the modern economic world. We have had the experience in the past of closing down the civilian economy. That's exactly what mobilization for World War II was all about, especially in the United Kingdom and the United States. But the close down of the civilian economy was done precisely to enable the limitless demands of the military economy to be met from a supply from scarce resources of materials and labor. Uh, here, of course, the close down, as somebody put it very intelligently, I think it was needless to say the brilliant Joe Stiglitz, what we also, by the way, a Cambridge alumnus, um, we, um, uh, we have the inverse of Say's law. Say's law notoriously and incorrectly states supply creates its own demand. Well, in this case, the collapse of supply has generated the collapse of demand. And with mm -hmm. greater or lesser efficiency and effectiveness, um, governments have been providing uh, life support, working capital cash to keep businesses afloat. Um, mm. The U.S. has done it in the most radically inefficient way by first requiring people to lose their jobs before they get access to cash support, unemployment insurance. Yeah. Germans, with their experience of the Kurzarbeit program, uh, which worked so well back in 2009 after the global financial crisis, have clearly had probably the, the most effective program of keeping the private economy, the civilian economy on life support uh, through, the, through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, but there are, there, there, one mistake that I think is made is um, trying to use uh, analogies drawn from mobilization for World War II um, to what should be the, what government should do right now in the midst of the pandemic. And there's, there's talk about, you know, war production board, industrial mobilization. Fact is, we have a very, very small number of needed products, um, masks, gowns, PPE, ventilators, um, and mm. different kinds of tests for the virus and for antibodies. And then of course, vaccines, vaccine candidates. 
this is very different from World War II, where you had the, the army with its demand for everything from, from, from tanks, and in those days, airplanes. Uh, in the U.S., the Air Force was part of the army. The Navy demanding battleships, aircraft carriers, and landing craft, all competing with each other in a completely incoherent um, uh, uh, excess demand. Here, we have a very narrow set of products needed. Um, the U.S. has done an historically incompetent job of allocating resources to a reasonably focused program for developing those products. It's had the, the individual states competing with each other while the once again, the Trump administration has more or less abdicated from anything other than working out who to blame today for what the failure of the last 24 hours. Um, but mm. we are going to see uh, some degree of continuity through this pandemic. Um, because the lessons of 2008 may have been perhaps learned almost too well, the speed with which the cash support programs to keep companies alive in the private sector were mobilized versus 2009 is really quite remarkable. Mm. The question is, what happens then? Here in New York, yeah. I'm speaking to you from New York City, from Manhattan, uh, here in New York, we've had a remarkable wow. continuing performance by our governor, Andrew Cuomo, uh, on television every day, speaking to, or on the internet, I should say, shows how old I am, uh, speaking to uh, constituencies, both in New York State and all over the world, and doing a remarkable job of uh, communication, uh, even if at the, at the launch, at the onset of the pandemic, he was a little slow to get off the mark. But uh, he's got a phrase, uh, which I think is mm. very compelling. Build back better. Use the mm. unused resources as gradually people, human beings in the market economy, gain the confidence and are allowed by regulation to go back to work. So there will be, I think it's undoubtedly the case, an extended period where there will be a, a surplus of resources, where there will be unemployed resources. Use that mm. to imagine, to think through what we can do with those resources so that the economy that emerges from this crisis is different in positive ways from the one that the crisis hit. The obvious yeah. one, the obvious one available to most countries in the OECD, most developed countries, maybe not in Australia, and right now not in the United States, contingent on the, the results of the 2020 presidential election, is to build back greener, to really devote resources, to yeah. finally get moving on reconstructing the infrastructure in order to both, both to take advantage of the amazing decline in the cost of renewable energy resources, solar and wind, uh, as yeah. well as to using available technology for, for example, mass transit, to increase mm. the carbon efficiency of the working economy in a step function way. Um, and obviously that also means learning the lesson 
from the post-war era of how to accelerate critically needed technological innovation. Yeah. The Defense Department in the U.S. accelerated the digital revolution by a generation, not because, not only because it funded advanced research in the new research universities. It be, it's because it served as the first supportive, collaborative customer for the companies, especially the new companies, companies with names like Intel in the 1960s. For their products, which almost absolutely by definition were initially very expensive and very unreliable. They were not ready for commercial use. They were not competitive yeah. with old-fashioned microelectronics until the Defense Department, which didn't care about the price, pulled the suppliers down the learning curve to low-cost, reliable production so that by 1980, the, techn the technology was there to enable the personal computer. That took 25 yeah. years. It might have taken 50 if it hadn't been for the United States Air Force and the United States Navy. Um, mm. That is a lesson that right now, the only people who seem to have learned that lesson are the Chinese. Yeah. Again and again, and particularly, I have to say, in Britain and the United States, state-of-the-art research in the great technical universities, most definitely including Cambridge, has been funded by government, but with mm. zero, zero recognition that to pull that new technology over the hump or across the valley into the commercial market takes that kind of collaborative, supportive production partnership between a customer mm. that is not motivated by least cost by maximum profit, but is motivated yeah. by performance. That's a role mm. that is desperately needed, for example, in all of the range, the spectrum of innovative energy storage technologies that, we, that are clearly critical to be able to replace the baseline old fossil fuel, uh, uh, both from coal to natural gas, energy infrastructure of the world. Yeah. Um, what practice? For sure. Uh, there are so many different interesting thoughts to unpack there. So there's so many ways in which I can take my next question. But just, just riffing off the last point, what do you think that we can practically learn from China to implement now in the States, in the UK, and similar countries to actually achieve a similar kind of growth? Well, first of all, um, China was starting from a place where the Western world is not, with a huge reservoir of labor with very low, even negative marginal productivity, so that moving people out of the villages and fields into towns mm. and factories had an enormous increase in total factor productivity. I had the great privilege at Princeton, before I went to Cambridge, as a, as a student at Princeton, to study under Sir Arthur Lewis, the great uh, uh, practical theoretician of development economics and his notion, his, 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 the, the work for which he got the Nobel Prize in economics on uh, economic development with unlimited supplies of labor. China has demonstrated what you can do 
when you start with that condition and after having survived Mao and the catastrophe of the Cultural Revolution and before that the Great Leap Forward, um, over the last <clears throat> over the last 30, 30, 35 years, China has clearly done a remarkable job. Here, um, I should then say that um, what we don't need to learn from China is that every follower nation, beginning with Britain in the 17th century and into the 18th century, begins by, to put it politely, appropriating all the intellectual property it can get its hands on. The British, the English took textile technology from Italy and India. Uh, we stole it uh, from Britain uh, around 1800 when it was a felony punishable by death or transportation to export yeah. textile machinery. And if you'd actually worked in a textile plant in Britain, in England, um, it was a felony to attempt to emigrate. Um, but the U.S. textile industry emerged mm. by 1850 was larger uh, and a larger scale share of the world market than, than Lancashire did. So the fact that the Chinese, like the Germans, Koreans, Japanese, before them, going back to the U.S. and the U.K., uh, appropriated all the intellectual property it, got its, it could get its hands on, that should be no surprise. That's the way the world works. But what they also have mm. appropriated, as we have lost it, is this model of public-private partnership. Um, and that's, we could see yeah. this in whether it's, uh, the, you know, the frontier technologies of machine learning. Um, we have certainly now put the Chinese onto a, a crash program to um, reduce slash eliminate dependence on American uh, microelectronics and semiconductor uh, process and design technology. It will take them a while to do that. Um, yeah. They, I, I do not believe they lack the intellectual, academic, technical, scientific resources to do that in part because the models are all there. You can reverse engineer the um, uh, design software uh, just as you can reverse engineer the machinery, the semiconductor process machinery. Um, and so, so I'm con I, I think I'm concerned more about the purely defensive response to the challenge of China unaccompanied mm -hmm. by parallel positive creative investments in pushing the frontier further out. It's a little bit like what did happen in Britain at the end of the 19th century, when it was clear that <laughs> Germany first in the scientific field and then the US were becoming uh, major challengers to Britain's economic and industrial position. And the response was the particularly movement towards protectionism uh, which didn't reach fulfillment until yeah. the, the Great Depression, but Joe Chamberlain started campaigning for protectionism of 1900. Um, and uh, as well, a failure to recognize that what the Germans had done in creating the research university and with state funding mm. through what then called the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes, now the Max Planck Institutes, much better name, um, mm. uh, was something worth modeling 
Cambridge had uh, 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 Cambridge was the home of the Cavendish, which had been funded by private philanthropy by the Duke of Devonshire, William Cavendish, yeah. seventh Duke, who was quite a scientist himself. Um, as you may know, I played a role in the first um, uh, fundraising campaign for Cambridge since Henry VIII knocked off the monasteries with help from Thomas Cromwell. Really? And uh, this was the the 800th anniversary campaign for Cambridge that raised a billion pounds, uh, the wow. first major campaign in Britain. And um, I used to say to alumni, you know, uh, the Cavendish exists not because the natural scientists all got together to build a memorial to the Duke of Devonshire. The, the money went the other way. The Duke of Devonshire yeah. gave the money to put Cambridge uh, at the forefront of physics and scientific research more generally. Uh, 150 years ago. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it, like doubtless funding, private funding seems to have a huge impact on the entire sort of running of the economy from my perception. One question that I'm really curious to ask you is like, what, from my perception, capitalism provides some sort of opportunity for massive innovation. But more and more nowadays, I'm sort of hearing negative connotations associated with the word capitalism. And I'm wondering what your perspective is on why that is. Why is there this current perception in society that capitalism is bad? I've, I've, I've written about this. Um, first of all, we have to recognize historically Capitalism is persistent. The Cambridge, uh, Cambridge two-volume history of capitalism uh, begins in Babylonian times. Uh, the great French historian, Fernand Braudel, uh, his three volumes on capitalism and civilization focus on the late Middle Ages and the early Renaissance, when the equivalent of venture capital investing in advanced technology was the funding of the long distance trade, the spice trade, um, mm. with enormous super profits available. Um, capitalism long precedes the emergence of representative government, of any notion of a liberal political economy. Mm. Capitalism has been there wherever a surplus is generated from current production and is available to be invested uh, for future return, however uncertain mm. that may be. Second, the coexistence of representative democracy and market capitalism with in particular its financial overlay as the development of financial markets has uh, disproportionately, particularly in the United Kingdom, the United States, uh, expanded since World War II, particularly since 1980. Um, that coexistence is relatively very recent and it's fragile. Mm. It broke down in some of the most important, most advanced countries in the world, of course, beginning with Germany, between the wars, with catastrophic mm. consequences. We should never take it for granted. The way I think about it, this goes back to my PhD thesis, the way I think about yeah. it is that we have two sets of institutions. We've evolved two sets of institutions, each of which assert a legitimate mm. claim to being the institutions through which 
resources should be allocated and income and wealth should be distributed. The institutions yeah. of the market economy and the institutions of the political process. There's a mm -hmm. continuing unstable dynamic. Those who accumulate power in one domain have the potential and the temptation to assert it in the other domain. This is typically referred to as rent seeking. And yeah. it's reciprocal. It's reciprocal. The great fear of the 19th century was that extending the franchise to the poor, once they got the vote, they voted take it all away. That proved to be a very, uh, by and large, in the Western world, and certainly in the United Kingdom and the United States, a, a false fear. But on the other yeah. hand, the flip side of that is those who accumulate power in the marketplace, the Koch brothers, for example, the great newspaper proprietors, will yeah. work to assert that power to influence, if not actually control, the political process. Now, today, to be that's a sort of long-winded introduction to address your question directly. Um, beginning, well, from World War II, from the end of World War II, with the founding of the Mount Pelerin Society, whose intellectual progenitors preceded the war, most notably Frederick Hayek, um, but others, Austrians like von Mises, um, they were on a mission, understandable in response to the totalitarian assertion of complete control from those who took who, who, who gained power in the political process uh, to delegitimize government as an economic actor. It took them 30 years. It takes 30 years. It takes a generation as people die and are replaced by younger people to change the intellectual yeah. cultural framework for these kinds of issues. But circa 1980, with Reagan in the US and Thatcher in Britain, they won. And the notion that the only role for government was, put it politely, to screw up markets that would, without government intervention, yield efficient, fair, stable outcomes for all. That dogma for a long generation to 2008 held, mm. held sway. It led to radical, both on the, on the active side, deregulation across market after market, but particularly the financial markets, on the one hand, and on the other, it froze, it delegitimized any effort by the state to offset the radical increase in inequality of incomes and wealth. Mm. That blew up in 2008, but its power, its authority, was sufficient to condition, to limit, constrain the response to the global financial crisis. On the one hand, you know, the, the worst punishment handed out to a banker was when Fred Godwin lost his knighthood. Mm. Basically, in the U.S., no bankers were even indicted, let alone convicted. In the much yeah. minor, minor savings and loan crisis of the late 1980s, 
um, I'm sorry, of the of the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, 200 bankers went to jail. Uh, so that lack of response, which was then at the macro level, uh, uh, confounded by the turn across the Western world, but especially in Britain and the United States after 2009, to austerity. Mm. And yeah. austerity whose consequences were the liquidation of state capacity, particularly at the local levels, most directly engaged with how people live from day to day, from hour to hour. I don't think you need much yeah. more, you know much more than that as to why neoliberalism, aka the neoliberal version of capitalism, uh, became a mm -hmm. dirty word. Mm. Yeah, that's re that's really interesting, and as a like, it's it's interesting to see when you explain it, like all of the historical context that feeds into the percep the cultural perception of of what it's perceived as nowadays. And to be honest with you, I have so many more questions. <laughs> I have so many more questions, but I do realize that we're coming up on time, and I do want to be respectful for that of that. So I, sorry, yeah, not what I can tell you. Two things, one. Mm. Um, I really enjoy this. You, you clearly have done your homework and have some really thoughtful questions to ask. Second, thank you. Depending on what feedback you get, if you'd like to do a a a, a, a follow on, I'd be happy to do so. I love talking about sure. this. My own thinking continues to evolve. I don't know if there'll be a third edition of my mm -hmm. book, but I do continue to write for a Project Syndicate, and of course, I have to say teaching the course on the economics of innovation and the economics faculty means that one has to stay up both with the academic literature and with what's mm. going on in the world in the world around us. So I really yeah. thank you very much for this opportunity and for the conversation we've had. No problem. That's great to hear. I do have one final question and that's sort of more practically. So if we want to relate this to sort of young entrepreneurs, what, uh, from your wide experience, both in academia and in practice, are sort of three key truths? And this doesn't need to be the be all end all, just what comes to mind. What are sort of three key truths about the entrepreneurial journey that you'd like to share with a young entrepreneur today? Sure, sure. Um, the first one, which seems counterintuitive, particularly in a context like Cambridge, when it comes to the likelihood of success of a startup, evaluating and addressing market risk is more difficult and more important than addressing mm. technology risk. What do I mean? The first question you should ask is, whose problem am I solving? Who, and how many people are there with that problem? And how do I get yeah. to the, the channel? Now, this is why, and this is maybe the second truth, there's an enormous difference between biotech, life science, medical startups, and all other ones. Because as long as healthcare is funded by third parties, whether it's the NHS or insurance companies in the US, the market risk is relatively very low. It may be why it, it addresses this, yeah. this addresses the, the biotechnology paradox. Why would any venture capitalist invest in a startup biotech company that is guaranteed not to generate a pound of revenue during the life of the fund making the investment. 
And that's because there's enormous scientific yeah. technical risk, but there's no market risk. So that's the first lesson. For sure. The second lesson, follow the cash. I said corporate happiness is positive cash flow. Access to cash when things don't go well. Access to cash is absolutely critical. So all, yeah. and, and this means that the technical entrepreneur needs a financial partner. It may be a sophisticated, experienced, knowledgeable angel investor. Generally, mm. it is a professional venture capitalist. And yeah. getting that partnership does cost something. It means both sharing ownership, diluting your control, and also means sharing governance. One of the tragedies resulting from the enormous success of Google and Facebook is the notion that real entrepreneurs have lifetime control of their startup ventures. That is such a tiny, tiny fraction. Bill Gates did not, just to be clear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And neither did the people who started Genentech, neither did the people who started Amgen. Um, so being prepared to share both ownership, potential future returns, and operating control with people who are complementary in their knowledge and skills is mm. really important. And then I guess the, 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 the third lesson is good enough is good enough. Trying yeah. to optimize for the ultimate home run. The fate, there are three fates for startups. The, most, the modal fate, the one that is most common, is failure. Everybody yeah. loses their money. Everybody loses their job. Everybody has a learning experience in which they can put back to work, perhaps in another startup. That's the yeah. modal. The second is not an IPO, a listing on the way to becoming a great independent, perpetual, sustaining, cash-generative company. The second alternative that is most common is what is called a trade sale or acquisition by an established company. This is not failure. It's failure if you have to declare bankruptcy and some established company sweeps in to buy the intellectual property you've sweated and slaved to develop for virtually nothing. But by and yeah. large, declaring victory, recognizing that many are mm. called to the entrepreneurial mission, but few are chosen for long-term independent success. That's the third lesson. That is wonderful. Thank you so much, Bill. Do you have Thank anything you. that you'd like to plug and where can people find out about you and your work? So you give people my website, www.billjaneway.com. Uh, mm -hmm. The book is available at an Amazon okay. website near you. It's also available at the Cambridge University Press Bookshop. When that reopens next door to Great St. Mary's um, and across from the Senate House. So uh, I, I, I myself look forward to getting back to mm. Cambridge for Michaelmas term. And I hope the university opens and I hope Cambridge University entrepreneurs continue to thrive. Most definitely. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure today to chat with you, Bill. And thank you so much for your time.
Well, that's a wrap for today's episode of the Young Entrepreneur's Journey podcast. Thank you so much, Bill, for taking the time. This was an extremely fascinating and enlightening conversation, no doubt. And to the listener, definitely check out his book. It's on Amazon. You can also find it on his website at www.billjaneway.com. All of the all of the links are in the show notes. Again, it's called Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy. And he talks about reconfiguring the three-player game between markets, speculators, and the state. So no doubt, a very, very fascinating read. I also conducted this interview on behalf of Cambridge University Entrepreneurs. Definitely check them out at www.cue.org.uk. Again, the link is in the show notes. They're a really, really fantastic organisation and definitely definitely spurring on a lot of innovation in Cambridge and bringing together those bright minds to create some great things in the world. With that said... What would really help me out is if you could just share this with someone you'd find this useful, share this with a friend, word of mouth is everything. And if you could also leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes, that would be fantastic. It helps with the algorithm. This enables me to then get a broader reach, which then allows me to make even better episodes and even more interesting interviews just for you. With that said, thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you have a wonderful day. Do you ever feel like you put on a front to the world? I did an episode for this podcast with my friend Will Nedder a while back called How to Hack Yourself and Live Life to the Fullest. And we were talking all about how many, many people bottle up their emotions. They mask their true feelings and their true selves with a fake smile. Firstly, because going through hard times is not something that people typically want to hear about. And secondly, because they're afraid to show the world their true colors. One thing that I really love is that Will likes to ask people, how are you really doing? Not how are you doing, but how are you really doing? Because that then gives them permission to open up unburden and be unashamedly themselves and feel lighter and more liberated in the aftermath. And one day Will himself was actually going through a tough time and he confessed to the person he was speaking to in that moment, I'm just low-key emotional. I just put on a front all the time. To which the immediate reply was, you should totally put that on a t-shirt. And boom, the low-key emotional streetwear brand was born. Will's passion for his brand truly oozes through in everything he does, and he essentially created this as a call to authenticity. A lot of us put on a front for the world of how we want the world to think about us instead of who we really are. We hide these parts of ourselves from others out of a fear that we will be judged negatively by others or that we won't be accepted for the person that we really are. So I want to ask you, what's your front? At the end of the day, the low-key emotional brand is all about facing your truth. So if you want to wear clothes like a hoodie, a cap, a bikini that actually stand for something real and keep your hustle low-key, I have an exclusive offer just for you as my podcast listener. With me, you get a 10% discount using the discount code YAS10. That's Y-A-S-10 at the checkout at lowkeyemotional.com. All of the links and the details are in the show notes. I gotta say, I have their hoodie myself. It's extremely comfortable. It looks incredibly hip. I love wearing it. And so if you're one of the cool kids, this is most definitely for you. Again, you can get a 10% discount using the discount code YAS10. That's Y-A-S-10 at the checkout at lowkeyemotional.com. And you too will be rocking the street look in no time. Again, all of the details are in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Young Entrepreneur's Journey. This episode is recorded in London by Yasmina Ellens. The music for the show as well as the editing is done by Jake Babineau. 
you've gotten anything out of this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend or liking it in the iTunes store. These things help more than anything else in reaching a broader audience and in turn will lead to better episodes for you to listen to. Thanks again and we'll see you in the next episode.